welcome to Cyberspectives, which is a podcast where we provide insights and analysis on the technology, policy, and legal issues associated with ensuring cybersecurity in an increasingly complex technology environment. Our guest today is Fiona Cunningham, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation uh, at Stanford, uh, going by the acronym CSAC. And her research lies at the intersection of technology and conflict, uh, and she's got a particular focus on China. She completed a PhD in September 2018 from the Department of Political Science at MIT, and in uh, her research work, she explored China's development of space, cyber, and conventional missile force postures as substitutes for using nuclear weapons to coerce adversaries. Uh, she also has uh, experience at the uh, Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard University. And prior to that, she uh, earned a Bachelor of Arts in Politics and International Relations from the University of New South Wales, as well as a Bachelor of Laws from the University of Sydney. So we're very uh, appreciative of uh, Fiona for coming on with us. And so thank you very much uh, for joining uh, the discussion today. Thank you, John. It's, it's great to participate. So I'm going to start off, given, of course, that you have focused so extensively on China, and, and just note that, you know, given all the work that you've done in China, I think your perspectives uh, are particularly interesting on, on that topic. Before we talk about cyber specifically, I think it would be helpful to hear a bit of background on China's military capabilities generally, including any notable trends that you foresee shaping what you've referred to as the, quote, levers of influence, close quote, within the Chinese military in the next few years. Right, so I, this is a, a question that we could literally spend all day talking about, so I'm going to try to keep it sort of short. Um, I think it, it helps to have a little bit of background about how China has been thinking about its military and the kinds of contingencies that they might need to, to prepare for in the future. And this sort of starts for China at the end of the Cold War, where they stopped thinking about dealing with a US or a Soviet invasion and started to think about uh, what kinds of local wars they might need to fight on their periphery. Um, but then the Gulf War came along, and like uh, many other countries, this really shocked the Chinese military into thinking more about um, its conventional military inferiority. And that was highlighted again in the way that the United States performed in the Kosovo conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq. So that really highlighted uh, China's need to sort of build up and, and uh, compensate uh, as best it could for its conventional military inferiority. Then, of course, the Taiwan Straits uh, crisis happens in 1995-96, and that becomes the sort of central contingency that Chinese uh, leaders and military planners are kind of thinking about. Um, so... You know, looking at, at that sort of set of contingencies and problems, China has been investing uh, in its conventional military power uh, for, uh, I would say, um, the last sort of three decades, but has really started to put money into that, uh, I think, uh, in about 1999, 2000. And the investments in sort of hardware and, uh, and improving the kinds of weapons and platforms China had are starting to, to sort of come to fruition in the last, uh, you know, five to ten years, I would say. But this has led to a recognition, I think, within the Chinese military that hardware isn't enough and it needed to start thinking about training and a command structure that would allow it to actually make use of, of you know, advanced conventional um, military capabilities, and in particular using the U.S. command system as a, as a model. So... 
China's uh, former uh, chairman of the Communist Party, Hu Jintao, who left office in 2012, focused a lot on improving training within the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. I'll use that acronym quite a bit uh, today. Um, but uh, the other major sort of trend or, or um, a notable uh, event with the Chinese military in recent years has been a major military reform effort uh, implemented by the current chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, uh, at the end of 2015 and start of 2016. And the main thrust of this was really to implement a command structure that would enable China uh, to uh, carry out joint operations in a more similar manner to the United States. So the ground forces, which had always been really dominant, uh, had their sort of position reduced. Um, the missile forces were upgraded to a full service and China um, put in place this new organization called the Strategic Support Force, which we'll, again, we'll probably come back to talking about cyber. Um, and I think sort of looking forward, some of the trends that we're likely to see is a uh, new doctrine for this new organizational structure, uh, as well as investments in the kind of uh, information support uh, capabilities in space and cyber uh, for the Chinese military going forward, as well as starting, I think the PLA is starting to think a lot more about how it can operate far beyond China's shores as other countries' interests uh, expand beyond its immediate periphery. Right, and they've been building up uh, aircraft carrier resources in, as well that they didn't previously have. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think they purchased their first carrier, and, and you'll forgive me if I get my years wrong, but first, purchased their first carrier, uh, I believe, from Ukraine, and that has uh, sort of set sail and started to develop its operational concepts in recent years. But China is also looking at building indigenous aircraft carriers as well, so uh, rather than purchasing them and developing the kinds of air capabilities that you would need to put on on top of an aircraft carrier to really make that um, that kind of uh, platform important. So when I talk a bit about China uh, starting to operate far beyond its shores, then obviously its aircraft carrier capabilities is central to that. Right, right. And I'm sure all of our listeners are, are well aware that China is one of the countries that has nuclear weapons. In fact, uh, that's been the case for, for over half a century uh, since they first tested a nuclear weapon. But listeners might be less familiar with some of the specifics. And, and you, you, of course, you mentioned the conventional capabilities. But just, just to get context, as far as is publicly known, what is the scale of China's arsenal of nuclear weapons and nuclear-capable missiles? Uh, so this is a really interesting area of China's military development that I think sets it aside from all other nuclear weapons powers and certainly from uh, the United States and Russia. It's really unique for its restraint in this area. Uh, so this stems from the fact that in 1964, when China tested its first nuclear device, it adopted... Um, what it calls the no first use policy. So it really pledged that it would only use nuclear weapons if it was attacked with nuclear weapons by another country first. Um, and this is a, a, a pledge that the United States hasn't uh, ever adopted and the Soviet Union did for a short period of time in the 80s, but no one necessarily believed it. Um, and what's unique about China is that it, it's the scale of its nuclear forces as well as the way it operates its nuclear uh, weapons um, really indicate this pledge isn't just sort of cheap talk and it's just a sort of um, uh, something that one might say uh, diplomatically but then has a little bearing on how, uh, how the uh, country's nuclear capabilities actually 
um, Lukora operated. So it has about 260 nuclear warheads compared to uh, Russia and the United States that have about 1,500 of them that are deployed uh, under their latest arms control treaty. And what's interesting is just what kinds of nuclear weapons China has too, because it doesn't have the kinds of nuclear weapons that are ideal for destroying another country's nuclear weapons or their conventional military forces. So they're really for the purposes of retaliating against cities, infrastructure, economic targets instead. And they're, they're mobile, so they're meant to evade an adversary's detection, um, and what's perhaps most interesting about China's nuclear force is that it keeps them off alert in peacetime. So um, the warheads and the missiles are stored separately and only the top leaders can order them to be put together if uh, China's facing a nuclear strike. So pretty remarkable because that strategy has been very stable since 1964, despite all the changes in types of wars and adversaries China would face. So uh, it's, it's quite remarkable that it's really been left out of this intense investment in conventional military power China has, uh, has made in recent years. And um, what's also very interesting, though, is that China has invested dramatically in conventionally tipped missiles uh, and, uh, you know, they are short-range ones. They're increasing in accuracy, so the kinds of things that you would use to target another country's military forces, um, uh, but uh, hasn't planned to use those uh, for nuclear missions. So really, really interesting trend within Chinese military strategy. Well, thank you. That's a really, really helpful explanation. And with that context, let's now turn to cyber. And I guess the, so starting with a broad question, how do you see cyber capabilities, both offensive and defensive, as fitting into China's military strategy? Well, I think uh, China has looked at cyber capabilities as something that uh, provides support for its war fighters uh, that can be used for offense, that can be used to defend its own networks, uh, as well as uh, embracing this idea of informational cyber deterrence. So that's the ability to kind of hold another country's important uh, strategic networks as risk, at risk as a way of sort of gaining some coercive leverage over them. And this is a sort of consistent thing uh, for China since about um, the early 2000s when they started investing in those capabilities. But there have sort of been some changes. So I'll just describe a little bit um, how I see the cyber um, military capability sort of fitting in within the broader uh, conventional and nuclear uh, capabilities that I've just described. So um, I think back when uh, China was very concerned about its backward conventional military capabilities, um, it started to look for other ways in which it could get leverage. So if it couldn't win a, a conventional uh, military victory against um, uh, Taiwan and the United States, if there was a contingency that arose, for example, over, over Taiwanese moves towards independent, independence, sorry, um, it needed some ways to sort of escalate, to put pain on, uh, cause pain for an adversary and, and cyber attacks were one of the possibilities that China looked at. Um, so it started looking at conventional uh, missiles in the early 1990s as one way that it could uh, sort of coerce an adversary if it couldn't win a military victory. 
Um, and after the 1999 um, uh, bombing of its embassy in Belgrade during the Kosovo War, which was an accident, it started to look at both counter space weapons as well as um, information warfare uh, capabilities, which included uh, cyber capabilities. So sort of started to invest in these as not just for, um, you know, uh, attacking the uh, computer networks of an adversary's military, but also thinking about this deterrent role for uh, cyber capabilities. Um, I think it's also been interesting though, because there's been a sort of change in how China has thought about uh, its uh, cyber military posture, right? the place of cyber capabilities within um, its military strategy, because initially in the early 2000s, it, uh, tasked its warfighters with developing offensive uh, cyber capabilities in particular and, and uh, the ability to exploit other countries' networks and, um, and surveil what they were doing without a lot of oversight or coordination across different aspects of the People's Liberation Army. So there were all kinds of units who were in this business. But um, as their capabilities matured by about 2012, the People's Liberation Army started to look to reform its cyber strategy um, and I think one of the most important drivers of that was a growing sense of vulnerability of both the military as well as uh, civilian society within China to uh, cyber attacks. So the country obviously had embraced the internet uh, fairly significantly in the 10 years from when China first started developing military cyber capabilities. They're also starting to see coordination problems that were hampering the use of cyber capabilities within the People's Liberation Army and um, a sort of neglect of cyber defences. Uh, so since 2004, there's been a lot more emphasis on information security and the People's Liberation Army. They consolidated um, offence and surveillance into uh, this new branch of the uh, People's Liberation Army called the Strategic Support Force. Um, but Lefner, interestingly enough, uh, defense of both military networks uh, as well as civilian networks outside of that organization. So there's sort of been some changes in how China's implemented its, uh, its cyber strategy in recent years. That's, that's a really helpful, really helpful kind of overview, you know, well contextualized in terms of helping us understand, you know, the interplay between their cyber uh, activities and sort of the broader uh, activities. And I guess just that leads into my next question, which is, you know, cyber is of course important, not only in the military domain, but but also more generally. And uh, in October 2016 at the uh, 19th Party Congress, I think it was October, maybe, did I get my year right on that or was it October 2017? Um, um, whatever the 19th Party Congress was, um, President, uh, the, the, which was the, the most recent of them, uh, President. Right. I think it was twenty seventeen. Yeah, that's, but, uh, I think so. But I'll have to check too. I'm read, I read that. I was like, I think it was actually twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. But in any case, the most recent uh, Party Congress, um, which was the nineteenth Party Congress, Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping stated that the goal is for China to become a quote science and technology superpower close quote. And I guess uh, I, I'd ask, how do you see cyber uh, as fitting into that overall goal? Sure. I mean, so it was very interesting to me. I, I, I did a year of field work within China in 2015-16, and um, every time I wanted to have a conversation about uh, Chinese military cyber capabilities, I was taken back by my interlocutors to the fact that 
you know, cyber is not just about uh, the military, but there are all these other security and diplomatic and uh, economic aspects to it from China's perspective. So I think uh, the view from Beijing and the view from China more broadly is definitely this idea that, you know, um, military cyber capabilities are situated within this much broader ecosystem that cuts across so many issue areas within China. Um, that said, I think um, in terms of this goal of uh, China looking to become a science and technology superpower, I think uh, for cyberspace, um, as well as more broadly for China, there's always a mix of sort of security as well as opportunity uh, in driving these sorts of goals towards becoming a superpower or, or achieving cybersecurity. Um, so I guess what I see uh, cyber sort of fitting into this goal um, is, first of all, a science and technology superpower is a model for a, uh, a prosperous China going forward. Perhaps it's also part of a vision for how China um, might be able to move away from its export-driven model of economic growth that it, uh, has propelled it to such wealth in the past couple of decades. But, you know, there's obviously a sense within China that it needs to, to come up with alternative methods of growing uh, moving forward. Um, and so being a science and technology superpower, investing in, uh, in innovation in that space definitely, I think, is one source of economic growth for China. And uh, cyberspace is definitely an important part of that. Um, the second sort of aspect of being a science and technology superpower, though, uh, also comes from a sense of insecurity that China has had from um, needing to borrow science and technology from other countries who were leading in that space. Uh, so this sort of quest for self-sufficiency that has been a persistent goal of Chinese leaders since the 1950s, um, which we can talk about a little bit more. Um, and another aspect of this insecurity, I think, that specifically from the perspective of the military comes from uh, the US uh, announcing, I think it was in 2015, this third offset strategy. So this use of uh, technology to offset uh, the US's quantitative disadvantage vis-a-vis uh, -vis China by sort of out-teching it and uh, borrowing from ways in which the US had previously invested in technology to get ahead of larger adversaries, uh, for example, the Soviet Union in the uh, late 1980s or in the 1980s, I believe, and then the nuclear um, uh, technology investments in the 40s. So. Um, putting cyber in this context, I think uh, the military continues to emphasize uh, investments in cyberspace going forward as being really important aspects of um, military power in the future. There's certainly absolutely no sign of the civilian internet slowing down within China and we sort of start to see efforts to replicate uh, the model of the Silicon Valley uh, innovation um, sort of hub within China too. So I think uh, cyber is a really important aspect of that goal. And just keying off of, of that last, some of the things that you mentioned, um, in the number of year, the last number of couple of years, we've you know seen a pretty concerted effort by China to reduce its reliance on non-Chinese technologies, which which you also just observed. And do you see that effort as accelerating or slowing down? And particularly in, in relation to cyber, do you think that also applies to cyber? So for example, instead of relying on uh, having their, uh, having a commercial sector companies in China rely on commercial cybersecurity products developed in places like the United States, do you see an intentional or you, do you anticipate an intentional effort in China to build a homegrown commercial cybersecurity ecosystem? 
Yeah, look, I think this is a really interesting set of questions and obviously really consequential for the US and the US tech industry and thinking about sort of the internet as a and, and cyberspace as sort of global space as opposed to being increasingly balkanized. And uh, unfortunately, I'm a little pessimistic in this space because I think China's uh, interest in uh, self-reliance and its sort of um, a homegrown ecosystem is is going to be accelerating in the future rather than slowing down. Um, but a bit of context is helpful here too because I think certainly the Chinese military has observed that there was, you know, one could be controlled by others at critical times if you relied on foreign produced hardware and software in the information space. And so I think I think 2000 is the first reference I've seen to it. Um, and so it's long been a concern for China that relying upon things that uh, other countries produce uh, has vulnerability or, you know, introduces vulnerabilities for the country, especially um, given the nature of, of cyber technology and information technology. That said, though, I don't think this was really a serious concern and a policy priority for Chinese leaders to address that vulnerability coming from foreign produced technology uh, products uh, until about 2013. And the reason for that is, uh, one might guess, um, Edward Snowden's revelations about the way in which the NSA had made use of US produced hardware and software to um, increase intelligence collection efforts the world over. Um, and so I think this really freaked out, frankly, Chinese leaders and propelled them to actually take policy actions to um, reduce China's reliance on foreign produced hardware and software. So you see it a little bit in some speeches on needing to propel uh, indigenous innovation in China that Xi Jinping was starting to give from about 2013 um, and culminated, I think, in 2015 with China's um, most recent five-year plan, which put a lot of uh, emphasis on indigenous innovation and, and technology substitution. And I mean, one of the fun things I saw in some of the military texts I was reading is the PLA being concerned that the Windows systems they were using would have backdoors. So, so there's certainly a concern that this is, that this is a problem. Um, and, you know, there's this view that homegrown cybersecurity products uh, may be less functional, but it's worthwhile using them even if, uh, even if that is the case because they, they sort of may be secure, um, more secure rather. So, um, again, though, I think like in the United States, you'll see uh, tiers in which uh, these things matter more or less. So I think for uh, the military, for government and for critical infrastructure relying upon uh, Chinese produced hardware and software is going to be much more important than, for example, your, your Chinese consumer who uh, I think would still be um, looking for an iPhone perhaps more than other types of uh, products. But um, I think also the, the US-led efforts to get uh, Huawei off the 5G networks of a lot of countries in the West um, are likely to reinforce Chinese views that, um, that you know, uh, if they try to build a homegrown infrastructure, other countries are doing the same. So they're not sort of running against the grain of what, um, what global cybersecurity trends look like. Thank you. Um, let me just switch to a, a sort of a global cyber norms question. Uh, there's been obviously a lot of discussion on that topic, on the topic of global cyber norms uh, in, in recent years. And what has China's role been in that process to date? And, 
looking forward, do you see China wanting to take more of a leadership role in setting global cyber norms? So I think China, ha- from what it, what is being reported to me, is that certainly some of these efforts to set global norms in cyberspace, which have been ongoing in the United Nations context in particular for a number of years, China wasn't super active in this space up until I think the mid 2010s, if that's even a word. So, um, but interestingly enough, around 2014, 15, I think China became a lot more active in engaging in this uh, cyber norm setting process. And certainly during the year that I spent there in 2015, 16, there was a lot of enthusiasm amongst the um, nascent cybersecurity policy community uh, for China to, to sort of step up and, and set the goal, set sort of the norms of cyberspace with the United States that, you know, these two countries, China being the most populous uh, cyber um, or country in terms of cyber users or internet users and uh, the United States being the most advanced, were really well placed to sort of work together to set the rules and norms for cyberspace. And a lot of Chinese experts sort of, uh, saw rules and norms as the only way to really achieve security in cyberspace in part because they shared some of the, the views of um, of Western scholars and experts who've been very skeptical of, of uh, you know, deterrence type of models for achieving security in cyberspace. So the rules were the only way. Um, and of course, in 2015, the group of governmental experts within uh, the United Nations achieved a consensus document that set out some um, some basic side assisting each other, not attacking critical infrastructure in peacetime. Um, and I believe up until that point, one of the big sticking points had been the application of international law in cyberspace and uh, the countries are sort of able to come, overcome uh, some of those boundaries or problems in that 2015-16 uh, GGE. How China will move forward uh, and how it has, has sort of acted in, in setting um, global cyber norms since then, I think is is an open question. I wonder whether 2015-16 might have been sort of the high watermark for certainly cooperatively setting cyber norms for China and some Western countries. Um, Because of course, prior to that point, China had been advocating a concept of cyber sovereignty since about 2010 uh, and a code of conduct on the internet with Russia that was much more interested in controlling content uh, on in cyberspace rather than um, uh, I think US and Western models which are more about preserving the functionality of, of the internet and of course subsequent GGEs have failed to achieve consensus within the United States and you know other aspects of uh, how China has approached the sort of uh, cyber norms and rules questions include you know, it's, it's interest in the Talon Manual, which applies the law of armed conflict to uh, cyberspace, but then no endorsement uh, of that process. And certainly in some Chinese writings, a lot of skepticism about whether or not the law of armed conflict is the right sort of, um, or, you know, could apply in cyberspace. And just, just a quick clarification, you mentioned GGE. I assume you mean a group of governmental experts in the UN, is that? Yes, yes, absolutely. I apologize. I should have spelled that one out. So, no, yeah, uh, I have a question also about um, presidential, the U.S. presidential election. Of course, campaigning for the 2020 uh, election is, is heating up and, and will uh, continue to do so over the coming uh, months and until the election itself. And 
we're obviously going to see a lot of discussion about election security. Of course, you know, the Russian attempts to influence the 2016 election have gotten a lot of attention, not only here in the United States, but also abroad. In particular, what do you think the Chinese government's view is of this whole issue? And do you think that China might at some point choose to use its cyber methods to try to influence elections, either in the United States or elsewhere? So I think this is a great question, and it's just, it's a really interesting one to contemplate from China's perspective. And I think some of the the um, Chinese views of this election meddling uh, on the part of Russia are a little bit counterintuitive, I think, because I think a lot of Western um, experts have sort of worried that China would look at what Russia did and think, wow, this is like a great model of something that we can think about doing too, given that um, China's relationship with the United States is sometimes a, a fairly tense. But I did go and have a read to see what Chinese experts were thinking and saying about this 2016 election meddling on Russia's part. And they were actually kind of upset, which uh, surprised me, but I guess I was, I was happy to be surprised by that finding. Um, they were really concerned that uh, this kind of um, meddling in another country's political affairs using cyberspace could become a norm of global behavior. And of course, they were thinking about China being a victim of this, of this kind of activity rather than taking inspiration from what Russia had done as a, as a sort of, wow, this is a great way to, a great instrument of influence within international affairs. And obviously, this is uh, only a small section of the of the Chinese uh, policy community and one that's outward facing. And there might be others within the Chinese government who do think that this is a, a useful model. But uh, I think it's heartening to see that they're more concerned than inspired by Russian actions. That said, though, if we look at some of the things China has been doing, there is some evidence um, uh, that some other Western scholars have picked up about China trying out some of the Russian types of um, techniques, in particular in Taiwan, and certainly reports of them surveilling uh, political parties, and I think it was in Cambodia or one of the other Southeast Asian countries in recent years. So... Um, it's sort of an open question as to whether or not the activities in Taiwan is because Taiwan is special or because uh, China would think about doing this to less powerful countries, but perhaps not a country that could meddle in its own affairs in retaliation, uh, such as the United States or Russia. So I think it's a, it's a sort of open question. To that's a really interesting question, right? I mean, you know, that's a, yeah, it's fascinating. Wow. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess uh, um, I got one more sort of, uh, question uh and it's just about um the challenge i think any large country and i assume china is no exception uh faces the challenge of coming up with a cohesive national cyber strategy and that's certainly not something that we've been able to do perfectly in the united states do you think that the chinese government has a single cyber playbook that it's using to coordinate national level cyber initiatives uh, in short, no, but uh, without access to what's happening deep in, in Zhongnanhai, the Chinese leadership compound, one would not know. But my hunch would be that if China had such a playbook, it would probably have to throw it out and rewrite it uh, as quickly as it was published because the, the situation is changing so quickly. That said, I think uh, in 2014, there was a major effort uh, within the People's Republic to 
start developing at least the organizational architecture for China to um, have a, to develop a coherent sort of cyber strategy and certainly have a lead organization that would be able to look after cyber strategy. And that was the central leading group on uh, informationization and cybersecurity that was established, I think, in February of 2014. And that sort of tried to bring together all of the different equities within China that had a stake in cyber, whether it's the Ministry of Public Security, that is the domestic sort of uh, public security agency within China, um, the military, foreign affairs, uh, you know, the economic and um, uh, sort of technology ministries within the country too. So there was an effort to sort of bring these groups together and uh, to start developing a sort of coherent strategy and, um, some uh, experts believe that a speech uh, Xi Jinping gave in 2016 at a sort of study group that involved some aspects of, of that uh, central leading group or a working group thereof um, was an effort to sort of sketch out China's uh, cyber strategy going forward. And, of course, there have been different aspects of that that have been published. There has been a... Um, a sort of domestic cybersecurity strategy published in late, I think, 2015, um, and then an international strategy that was published, I think, in um, uh, February or March of 2016, laying out sort of what China's goals were, um, some of the developments that it thought were concerning, um, and uh, and what it was sort of planning to do. So, um, I think there have been sort of efforts to develop these strategies, but you still see a lot of um, I guess, reactive aspects to Chinese cyber strategy and the uh, Russian election meddling is obviously one of the, just these unexpected events that happen because the space is changing so quickly. Uh, but then there's also the usual sort of bureaucratic push and pull within China about who gets to take the lead over certain aspects of uh, national cybersecurity policy. And, um, well, it's not it's not a phenomenon that's that's uh, unfamiliar to us either right right saying. absolutely so um so i think uh in that way china is uh you know regardless of the way that the government is structured quite differently from some western governments balancing out all of those equities and uh reacting to this fast-moving terrain is is a is a familiar policy challenge Right. Well, I, I guess before we finish up, I just I just ask, is there, I mean, this is a fascinating set of topics that you've led us through. Is there anything else that, that um, you'd want to say sort of about China, geopolitics and cyber that, that you didn't already uh, tell us in, in the last uh, half hour or so? There wasn't sort of anything that, that off the top of my head is, is jumping out in that space, but I think uh, I would I would just add that the complexity and the dynamism of uh, China's approach to cybersecurity and cyber strategy is probably a good example of how um, U.S.-China relations, uh, great power politics is going to play out in the future uh, with competition and technology where the private sector is sort of woven up in, in things as well. Um, this is not your uh, Cold War nuclear arms race anymore, and it's going to take um, uh, some very deft, uh, I think, government as well as uh, private sector and um, and non-government, non-private sector folks to come up with good solutions so that uh, we can we can sort of keep some rules and keep the peace. And so I'll, I'll say that it's, it's difficult to predict the future, but one prediction I'm quite comfortable making is that given your focus on, 
on China and all of these complex issues is that you are not going to run out of interesting things to do in the next couple of years. I think you'll have uh, plenty of just absolutely fascinating questions to work on. And uh, very much looking forward to reading uh, what you write uh, over, uh, over the coming years. Well, thank you, John. I mean, it's endlessly fascinating, and I would encourage anyone who's interested in these kinds of issues to just jump into them because we need as many good brains as we possibly can working on these questions. Okay, well, thank you very much for being on with us. Thank you, John. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts and ideas from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org.